Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Monday, October 9th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. It contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we're hopeful that people will do all of those things soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of that to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so and giving us a call at 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1 on your phone, It'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number 
I can turn on the microphone then and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And alternately, if you're listening through the archives and you would like to get feedback or make a comment, you can give us uh, send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if you do that, we will address the comment or question or feedback on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback. The archives are another powerful tool, now powerful resource that uh, Michael and Jeannie make available by maintaining um, the website and um, the archives through Blog Talk and I think it's iHeartRadio. So the last 12 and a half years of um, Internet shows and their recordings almost every one of them is available. And uh, I say almost because occasionally there's a technical difficulty that doesn't allow a show to get recorded or doesn't allow us to have a show. That has happened a few times in the course of our 12 and a half years. But everything else is there and available, and we recommend on a regular basis that people use those archives. Go back. There are some that have been curated out as best of and highlight shows and um, you never know what's going to make one a highlight show so there might be something that is valuable back there that nobody else thought was so valuable to make it a highlight show and you find it on the uh, archives and get tremendous benefit from it all of this work is geared towards helping us helping you helping anybody who's interested learn how to use and develop, strengthen their skill in using these tools to great advantage in their lives. Tools include the Reality Management Worksheet, the targeted journaling tool that Michael calls a mind shifter, a tool titled Three Early Memories of Conflict, a tool titled the Responsibility Communication Tool, a tool for the improvement of your relationships called the Commitment, a tool to help you manage the stresses in your mind, the Mind Goal Management Sheet, a tool to help you figure out who it is that you might be blaming for upsets in your life from the past and what your what your advice is to them and then to figure out how you can apply that advice to them in your life and improve your life by leaps and bounds and and the list goes on there are other tools and um we have uh hope you and many others will benefit from using those tools on a regular basis. 
And if there's anything we can do to answer questions about how to use those tools in specific situations or which ones to use in one situation or another, that is just one of the things we're here to do on the Internet show. So if you have a comment or a question for us, you can give us a call at 563-999-3581. And when you call that number and press 1, it'll let me know you have a comment or a question, and I will turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. We've been doing some reading with the uh, the book by Diedrich Wolzak titled Choose Again. And in that reading, we are helping people explore another tool, very to my eye and ear, very similar to Dr. Michael Rice's Reality Management Worksheet. And not entirely dissimilar from Byron Katie's the work and the worksheet that she has and the questions she asks and very similar to the work by Diedrich Wolzak who studied A Course in Miracles and where we left off the last time was in quoting A Course in Miracles. An untrained mind can accomplish nothing. And it is the purpose of these exercises in A Course in Miracles to train the mind to think along the lines which the Course sets forth. And the summary of that last chapter that we read is that upsets are gold because they represent opportunities for healing. And we are never upset for the reason we think. And we can benefit by resisting the temptation to say, I'm upset because of this, that, or the other thing. And we benefit when we realize there are no small upsets. As A Course in Miracles would say, The slightest irritation is connected to the deepest rage. And we are not upset by facts or events. Upsets are the result of our interpretations, and our interpretations are based on the beliefs we hold about ourselves. And finally, want to be right about an upset today? Well, If you want to be right about it, you'll keep suffering. But the recommendation is, don't make yourself wrong about wanting to be right about your upset. Just observe it and smile. Let it go and understand it only has the value you continue to give it. Chapter 6 is titled, Step 2, Me, It's About Me. 
he quotes the Buddha at the beginning of this chapter, where the Buddha is quoted as saying, In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed there is nothing here. This, Bahaya, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's B-A-H-I-Y-A, is how you should train yourself, since it is there for you in the scene, only the scene, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the thought of, only the thoughts about it. And you see that there is nothing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is nothing there, no thing there. As you, see there, no, as you see there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. Diedrich writes, now we move on to step two. This upset is about me. It's all about me, and it's only about me. This is perhaps the most crucial step, because without it, we're going to do what most people do. We're going to blame something or someone else for whatever seems wrong in our lives. We're so used to thinking that we know why we're upset. We believe that certain individuals or circumstances beyond our control are the sources of our being upset. We might think we are victims of our parents, families, or spouses. We might think we're victims of the economy, the government, or the courts. We might think we're victims of religious persecution or political corruption. We might think we're victims of a polluted environment and our own bodies. We might think we're victims of time and history. We might think we're victims of our gender. The belief that we are the victims of so many influences in our lives and that our lives happen to us, this belief is a primary belief for nearly everyone on this planet. The belief, but, and the belief that we are the victims of our own lives is not true. It is a belief. It is a false idea that robs most of us of hope and true happiness. What follows when we see ourselves as victims is an inevitable anger at the circumstances and individuals in our lives who seem to be causing unhappiness. They're causing our unhappiness. We need to ask ourselves whether we believe that we are puppets on the strings of our lives, controlled by the forces outside of ourselves and ultimately by God, or whether we are actually free. Try to imagine what it would feel like if you believed at the very core of your being that every circumstance in your life arose from a creative power residing within you. What if you realized that your experience of life is determined from within, driven by the beliefs you hold about who you are? This collection of beliefs 
writes the story of your life. The only free will we have is the freedom to change our beliefs and thus our lives. How would it actually feel if you could allow this radical statement to be true for you? Do you need to tell your story? Most people who come to our Center for Healing have seen therapists at some time in their lives. The normal commencement of therapy is to tell your story. And then you go back a week later and tell your story again. But very little changes in the process. You tell your story again and again and again, and still nothing changes. The seductive aspect of this method is that you briefly feel better after telling the story. So glad I got that off my chest. Oh, I feel much better now. Or the other favorite, I just want to be heard. The reason nothing changes is because the real problem is hidden underneath our story. If all we do is repeat our story, then we're actually protecting our core beliefs, making them more real and embedding them ever more deeply in our psyches. To make matters worse, we will lobby our friends to agree with our story. Often, we define a friend as someone who echoes our story. When someone commiserates with us, we get to be right about our story. Even if being right is delicious to the ego, it is a huge barrier to a real experience of love, capital L, love. Recently, we had two therapists visiting from another country. We invited them to participate in the circle after which they commented, our work is very similar to what you do. However, we feel it's important that the client is heard and acknowledged. We feel that when a client feels understood, they're ready to move on. Well, in this work, we teach that the suffering we experienced in our formative years is best not explained and understood. That's because the suffering we experience derives from our interpretation of what happened, not derives from what actually happened. Step two is what sets this work apart from most forms of therapy. Having spent a little time on Facebook, I'm often struck by the number of victim postings, as well as the numerous comments from people supporting them people invariably mention how they too have been victimized in a similar way. So they understand how the victim in the original post must feel. This is a virtual support group. But in my opinion, support group support groups don't advocate for constructive change. By way of individual initiative, they only serve to support and thereby perpetuate the shared victim mentality. We may want to ask ourselves, is the story of my life worth preserving if it does not bring me peace and happiness? Another way to ask the same question is, would I rather be right or happy? Before I started doing my work, 
it never occurred to me that these choices were mutually exclusive. I prided myself on being right as often as possible. I could, quote, win, close quotes, a debate, taking on one position in one corner at a party and then go to another corner and take the exact opposite position and win that debate. It did not occur to me that winning was, at a deeper level, losing. Being right was the juice of life for me. I had the pleasure of being on two juries, and in both cases, I was the lone voice against 11 others. In both cases, I turned the jury around. Does that sound glorious? It was hell. All that being right made for an incredibly lonely life. And it never dawned on me that underneath that compulsion to be right lay a devastating belief that I was wrong, deeply wrong in the essence of my being. Whenever I treasured being right, the result was isolation and depression. When people come for healing work and learn that I'm not so interested in their story, they say, well, but if I don't tell you my story, how are you going to know who I am and what happened to me? How are you going to know what to fix? The answer is that what always needs to be fixed is their ego's interpretation of their experience. The facts of what happened are always neutral. And they can be interpreted in any number of ways. Often, healing begins by asking, is there another way of seeing this? Years ago, I was at the house of two dear friends, both therapists, John and Linda. John arrived home for dinner three quarters of an hour late. Before he arrived, Linda had become very agitated, which she attributed to his not calling to explain. As we waited, I asked her, what is your interpretation of John being so late? I suggested that her anxiety could be traced to a negative core belief that she wasn't examining. For instance, what if Linda had a belief that she could lose love? Then perhaps she would worry that John was late because he had an accident. What if Linda believed that she was the victim? Then Linda may have thought that John was having an affair. What if Linda believed that she was unimportant? Linda may have thought that John didn't call because she wasn't worth the consideration. Any of these ideas are purely hypothetical interpretations of the neutral fact that John was late for dinner and didn't call. In fact, later processing revealed that Linda's father had been an alcoholic, he was notoriously unreliable in his comings and his goings. Consequently, as a little girl, Linda had made up the belief that she could lose love at any moment. So when John was late, it triggered the same anxiety in her that she had experienced all those years ago. Once such beliefs are cleared, events are experienced as neutral, and curiosity will be the predominant feeling. The story, which means any event that produces a feeling, seems to explain that feeling. But in fact, the feeling is chosen by a prior belief 
which is the actual author of the story. Do you begin to see how ridiculously circular the ego's reasoning is? As soon as we feel anything less than love, we can know that we are not in the truth, capital T, truth. We're not seeing life. We're not seeing the picture fully and clearly and completely. Truth, capital T, truth, and feeling are mutually exclusive. In truth, capital T, truth, a state of mind, a state of being, which is not a feeling, in that we experience only peace. As soon as we feel something else, we know that we've made an interpretation based on our beliefs. It is our beliefs that create the I that I am made up of. The self-made I makes up interpretations and having done so experiences them as if they are real and instantaneously forgets that it made up the interpretation. It is so important that I recognize that I'm the one that did the forgetting that this forgetting has a purpose and that it is this ego purpose that I no longer want or need. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, he describes his harrowing experiences at Auschwitz, the notorious Nazi death camp. He notes that even in the most worst possible scenario, in which absolutely everything has been taken from you, you can still retain the freedom to choose how you feel and how you react. As Frankel wrote, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, which is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Diedrich writes, whether we are in extreme suffering or more ordinary daily struggles, the best attitude to choose is that of the higher self rather than the self-defeating ego. The next section is titled, Why You Must Relinquish the Story. Diedrich writes, a woman came to me for therapeutic counseling in Vancouver some years ago. She was 33 and had been ritually sexually abused in her early youth. Her story was terrible, about as extreme in the details of abuse and persecution as one could imagine. It took her two and a half hours in our first session just to tell me the story. No doubt she was accustomed to therapists commiserating with her because when she was finished she remarked, over the years, I've seen many therapists, and you're the only one to hear the story and not react at all. I can't begin to tell how you're freeing, how, I cannot begin to tell you how freeing that was. So with that feedback, that she'd been liberated on some level by my complete lack of reaction to her story, I received confirmation for one of my therapeutic truisms. Never believe the story. If you believe your story as told, it becomes real, and we're both stuck with no way out. That's therapeutic collusion. 
which is not a path to healing. No matter how terrible your story is, what happened to you wasn't terrible per se, it was terrible in your interpretation. You may notice that I didn't tell her nothing happened, which some might say is a typical Buddhist perspective. I didn't tell her it's just an illusion. I didn't tell her how did you create that. I didn't suggest any of these perspectives to her. The story did happen and was not an illusion. If we want to facilitate healing, we have to work with the experience the client brings to the situation and the session. So after the story's been told, the next step is to say, yes, that happened. Now, what are we going to do with it? Somebody did something to your body. We've established that. Nobody's disputing that. But what are you going to do with it? You've told me your interpretation, which is what actually causes you so much emotional pain. So the real question on the table, a series of questions on the table are, how are you willing to reinterpret what happened in order to have a normal, happy life? And how are we going to help you see that the I in this horrific story is not who you in truth are. What we teach is that there's never any reason to be upset. With step two, it's about me, blame is relinquished totally and resolutely, and the ownership of any upset reverts to you, where it actually began. Relinquishing a blame and the story has to happen in order for us to be truly happy. So here's the challenge. We must trust this step even if we don't believe it. Without this step, resolution and peace won't happen. Okay, okay, you say, so it's about me. You have to tell yourself, I accept that blaming anyone or anything for this upset won't get me what I really want. And what I really want is to be happy, to be at peace. The benefit of taking complete ownership of the upset is to realize that you are always the author of your experience. I can assure you that when we practice, quote, it's about me, close quotes, all our relationships are well on their way to being magically transformed. All relationships have the same purpose, healing. Every relationship we have, whether it's with food or the air you breathe, your car or a gnarly customer in the airport, customs officer in the airport, all of this is for healing old beliefs. If we are awake, all relationships will offer healing opportunities. If we're not awake, we're likely to have permanent low-grade irritation, chronic sense of sadness, or a frequent feeling of anxiety. All day long, we are offered gifts in the form of opportunities to recognize our beliefs through relationship difficulties. We must recognize the cost of, quote, sleeping, close quotes, and decide that that cost is just too high.
The next section is titled, Step 2 and Romantic Relationships. Diedrich writes, many couples come to the healing center because they feel that their relationship needs work. While their relationships are ultimately transformed in a very positive way in the beginning, they are invariably going to be highly uncomfortable. On occasion, couples report that in the beginning of doing this work, they feel worse than they ever have. Well, how could that be? Before doing this work, people can attribute their unhappiness to a wide range of interpersonal issues, and they can refuse to look within themselves. In practicing the six-step process, however, you're addressing the source of all problems. The source is your identity, the, quote, I, close quotes, that you have made up. You are the cause of your relationship not being so wonderful, not your partner. Unless you allow that realization to ring true, you will keep looking for causes and faults outside yourself. Thus, there are two big steps you have to take. The first is to say, quote, it's all about me, close quotes. And the second is, quote, nothing has gone wrong, close quotes. So, in a relationship, there are two, two big steps you have to make. The first is to say, it's all about me. And the second is to say, nothing has gone wrong. I can just hear. <laughs> he says, both statements will be a leap of faith at first. In fact, there is nothing wrong with your relationship. What's wrong is your interpretation of your relationship, yourself, and your partner. When people first undertake this work, they're apt to say, she should change. And as soon as she does, then I'll be happy. I'll tell her exactly how she should change. But therein lies the error. They're looking at something outside of themselves as being the source of their unhappiness, while the real source lies within. They need to look within themselves and change their minds about who they think they are. If I insist on being right about my partner needing to change, then I'm stuck with a losing strategy of trying to change him or her. I'll send him or her off to an enlightenment workshop. I'll send them off to a yoga camp. I'll send them off to all kinds of esoteric retreats because come hell or high water, I'm going to get this other person to change somehow. And when they come back all fixed, then we'll finally, I'll finally have the ideal partner for me. Dietrich writes, guess what? That will never happen. It will never happen for the simple reason that she's already the ideal partner. I just don't see it. What am I seeing instead? I'm seeing myself reflected in my partner, and that's what I don't like. When couples come to me for relationship work, the most important and difficult step is for each person to take total ownership of the entire relationship. Many years ago, a woman joined one of the circles in Vancouver and shared a new and a 
exciting idea she just learned from her therapist that day. She said, I learned today that I'm 100% responsible for 50% of the relationship. Now that does sound very strong and very powerful. Think about it for a minute, though. 50% of the relationship? How is it defined? And who would do the defining? How long do you think it would take to make your partner's 50% larger and larger? Here is the unpleasant truth. I'm not responsible for 100% of 50% of the relationship. I'm responsible 100% for all of it. There's no other way to confront how the ego works. The ego always depends on the constructs of blame and victimization. And those are the constructs that typically rise to the surface in relationship counseling. What couples learn in this six-step process is to accept that it's all about me. We have to change our beliefs, and if we do, we'll have an opportunity to have an entirely new experience, not just in our intimate relationships, but in all areas of our lives. Our work is not about behavior modification. It's not about compromise. It's not about sacrifice. When I had relationship counseling for my own marriage long ago, it centered on agreements such as, quote, if I agree to do the dishes, then you'll take out the garbage, close quotes. It was all based on negotiating behavior, and it went absolutely nowhere. If you find yourself in a counseling arrangement that focuses on changing specific behaviors, yours or your partner's, then you'll find that lasting results are hard to come by. That's because trying to, quote, get your needs met, close quotes, by another person will never work. Only you can meet your own needs, and only by recognizing that what you call a need is just the belief that you're lacking something. That need will never be met because it's not real. Transform the belief and the need miraculously vanishes with it. In truth, there is no lack. In truth, we are unchangeably whole and complete. That's why our work doesn't focus on behaviors. Obviously, if we're in an abusive relationship or we're self-destructive, those behaviors have to stop in the short term. And everything that's playing out in our relationships is just evidence of who we think we are. To be really happy in life, sooner or later, we're going to have to start healing the core beliefs that we have carried for so long. There is no escaping that. The key to step two is to be aware that we are constantly looking at our own beliefs when we are cataloging all the problems of a relationship. For instance, when we say, this is me, and this is me, and even this is me, and I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, if I don't like what we're seeing, we're going to have to change it. And that means changing our identity. We have to start correcting core beliefs, and if we don't, we're going to be in the same relationship over and over again. Whether we stay with this partner or go on to the next one makes no difference. 
That's because we're in relationship with the ego self. But if we're consistently in relationship with our higher self, extending that higher self to our relationships, these relationships will be magically transformed. The next section is titled, All Relationships Are the Same. Diedrich writes, sometimes people have different qualities of relationships, such as a great business relationship, but a troubled relationship at home. This is a situation that can only be sustained for a little while, because the lousy relationship at home is what Papa G. Punja calls, quote, the drop of cyanide in the honey, close quotes. If we think we have a wonderful marriage but hate our job, sooner or later that circumstance is going to negatively affect our home life. That's because all relationships are with ourselves. Any relationship we find less than joyful than others represents some troubled aspect of the self. That aspect or core belief will keep seeking evidence for its reality, eventually poisoning all of our relationships. A man in his mid-30s, very successful in business, had absolutely no trouble attracting beautiful women. But after two or three months of dating, these women invariably became increasingly busy and had less and less time for him. They were overscheduled. They had demanding careers. They canceled dates, or they couldn't see him for days on end. Sooner or later, he always got the message that he was just not all that important. Why did it always happen to him that women he attracted were sooner or later just too busy? As we began our process, and he turned his mind to the most recent time when a partner was, quote, was not available, close quotes, and how he felt about that, he immediately remembered, I'm three years old, I've stubbed my toe, and it's bleeding a little bit. I run into the kitchen where my mom is making dinner, and say, Mommy, Mommy, and my mom turns around and says, Not now. Right then, he made up his mind. Women don't have time for me. And that also meant, I'm not important, or I'm not lovable. Thirty years later, he goes to a cocktail party. He scans the room. Perhaps there are 12 eligible women there but only one who will eventually not have time for him. And, of course, that's the one he'll be attracted to. If they connect, it's because she has the complimentary belief that being, quote, too busy, close quotes, will protect her from getting really close to anybody, thereby defending some wounded story of her own self-ego. We're all beings of energy. Beliefs are energy. Our energy field surrounds us. And when we connect with other people, it's usually because our energy or beliefs meet their energy or beliefs. So it is with our fellow at the cocktail party. He will pick, time and again, the woman who will eventually not have time for him. He's looking to live a perpetual replay of that early experience with his mother so that it can be healed. But his ego wants to prove that the original story is still true. It gets more interesting, though. 
Even if the person to whom I'm attracted does not initially reflect my beliefs, over time she will. Let's say I have a belief that I'll be betrayed, and my new partner is the most faithful partner in the world. In that case, I may continually suspect, accuse, nag, and reject her as if she has betrayed me. And then, guess what? She'll have an affair, and my ego will smugly say, I knew it. If we don't like the circumstances that we continue to attract, we can change our beliefs, and in so doing, we'll attract a different reality. There's no doubt that it's challenging to declare, quote, from here on out, I will gladly assume total responsibility for everything that happens to me, close quotes. It is a tough decision to make. It's even tougher to reinforce. We invite you to make it anyway. For if we are willing to make that crucial decision, we've taken the single most important step in our own healing. We need to understand that it's impossible to be a victim in the first place because in truth, nothing that happens can ever really hurt us, our true nature. It is our thoughts alone that hurt us. It is our interpretation of what seems to happen that causes our suffering. Who we really are, our eternal self, is unchanged and unchangeable. Because of this, any person whom I'm attempting to blame for hurting me is always innocent. Now that's a tough concept to accept as well. And yet, it's absolutely essential to our healing that we decide to do so. There are a number of thoughts flooding in my mind from all of that, the ideas that we echo in so many ways. Dr. Michael Rice says on many occasions in some of his lectures, there is no such thing as a victim, only volunteers. And... We talk about this in the support groups. We talk about this on the Internet show on a regular basis. The value of having a reality management worksheet or Diedrich Wolzak's Choose Again worksheet or Byron Katie's The Work, the value is contained in the truth, the direct observation that I'm the one creating my upset. Because the worksheets are not about getting anybody else to change. As a matter of fact, we talk about it on a regular basis when people do worksheets in the support group. We point out to them, hey, look, you started at a level 8 upset. Here we are 15 or 20 minutes later. We've taken time to do the worksheet and do a couple little meditations for focusing on loving energy and then asking to be shown the hidden part of your mind. And now all of a sudden you're saying you're, what, your upset's down to a 2 or a 1 or a 0? But the people that you said you were upset about don't even know you're doing this worksheet. Nothing has changed. The money in your bank account hasn't changed. You still don't know what the outcome of the trial next week is going to be. And yet, you feel better. So, 
It's an observable truth, capital T truth, that we are the ones inside of us who are creating our experience of life by how we're choosing to interpret and respond to the flow of life events. If that weren't the truth, there would be no point whatsoever in doing any worksheet processes. If indeed my pain and my fear, my sadness, my hurt was being created by someone or something outside of me, the only thing that would bring me um, results or relief is finding a way to change the people and things outside of me. So our call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. How is this landing for you? Hearing about a little bit more of the details of the Diedrich Wolzak's Choose Again six-step method and worksheet process. How does it feel to step into or at least even pretend to step into 100% responsibility for every aspect of your life. And in this case, Diedrich's saying, even more than the interpretation of it. Although I have said it before, I don't usually go to that level. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to go to that level. I think I get plenty of good results when I simply take responsibility for how I'm choosing to interpret and respond to the life events that occur. Dieter goes the next mile and says, but I'm taking responsibility for the life events themselves, for the flow of energy. When I read this in Diedrich's book, I was thinking about the book by John Cleese and his psychiatrist. John Cleese is a comedian in England. He was part of the Monty Python troupe. And he had group therapy for, I don't know how many years, lots of years. And then he said to his psychiatrist, you know, this is the best thing I've ever done. Why doesn't everybody do this? And the psychiatrist said, well, two reasons. One is money and availability. Not everybody can afford it, and even if they could, there wouldn't be enough individual therapists to do this or groups for everybody to be in. So John said to his psychiatrist, well, why don't we write a book and put all this good stuff that you and your wife are teaching us in this group in the book so everybody can get access to this wisdom? So they wrote a book. I don't think it's a great book, but I thoroughly enjoyed the title. And there are a couple things in it that I've used in my work with people as validation and strengthening points. The title of the book was Families and How to Survive Them. So, you know, humorous title with some truth in it. And yet, the point that's relevant for this discussion, after having read that section from Diedrich's book, is that 
the psychiatrist would tell us how he and his wife would go and do these seminars. And in these seminars, they'd have people in the audience. And in the very beginning of their <clears throat> their meeting, they might have an auditorium full of people, 100, 200, 300, whatever. And they would say to these people, okay, put your pens and your papers down and walk around without saying a word and pair up with somebody you don't know, somebody you never met before, somebody you didn't come to this auditorium with. Just walk around and pair up with another human being. And, of course, there was usually grumbling and groaning about all this touchy-feely stuff, and I didn't want to come here for this, and I thought I was going to learn something useful and all that good stuff. But the psychiatrist and his wife, also a psychiatrist, would stand up on stage and just observe until they saw that most of the people in the auditorium had paired up and they were standing there waiting for the next instructions. What they would do is they would interrupt the process and they would tell everybody that had not paired up to get into a group over on the side and that everybody else was supposed to start talking about their family of origin. And so as they did that, they and they had the, the people in the group do the same thing, talk about what their origins were and how their family was, etc. And what they found was that without any verbal exchange, people always found somebody that came from a family similar to theirs, a family that easily spoke of or expressed the same emotions that were easily spoken of or expressed in their family of origin. One of the ways they talked about it was, if I was there and I'm in my 70s, I would pair up with somebody that reminded me of my son or my daughter or my niece or my nephew, an important person from my family of origin, or the person that was missing, the, the son I'd always wanted or the daughter I'd always wanted, etc. And so that was interesting that people paired up with people without any conversation whatsoever they paired up with people that came from families that shared similar beliefs about which emotions are safe to express and which ones are not so safe to express. The real trick, the real, real tip, tipping point for me was what they found every time they did this exercise in their seminars was that everybody who didn't pair up when they got in that group and talked these every single person was either an only child, orphaned, or abandoned. And the point they were making is the very same point Diedrich was just making in his book. We exchange volumes of information with people before we ever open our mouths. We are radiating out energies that are in resonance with other people's energies. Dr. Michael Rice talks about how we are attracted to people who have, the way Michael says it is, matching bags of garbage. The way I like to say it is, compatible. 
bags of garbage. They may not match exactly, but they'll be complementary. And that's the kind of an example that Diedrich has in his chapter here, where he says the one gentleman finds a person who is always going to say she's too busy eventually, and he's going to find that person because he's trying to heal a wound about not feeling like he was able to get the love he needed from his mother because she was too busy. So, 563-999-3581, call that number, press 1, even if you just want to get into the queue for the second hour, which should be coming up in just a few minutes. Today's Monday, that means tomorrow we will have a support group. I would be happy if you would pass that information along to anybody you think might be interested. You can go to the mindshiftersacademy.org website and find the login information for Tuesday's support group. Despite what the uh, what the website might say on certain pages, it's available absolutely free. All the information is right up there up front. It does have some glitches in the website where it might say, you know, recommended donation, etc. But ever since the coronavirus restrictions, we haven't uh, made paying for the support groups uh, mandatory. So we'll have another support group. We'll explore these concepts more deeply. We'll have people who might do a worksheet. We'll have people who might call in and discuss worksheets they've already done. And if any of that seems of interest to you or there's a way we can support you, please let us know. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org and we'll, we'll get back to you with a response. And if it gets addressed on the Internet show, we'll let you know what day and time that happens so you can listen to the feedback. In the meantime, I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Welcome to a new week. Thank you. Same to you. Have a wonderful show. Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mind Shifters Radio. And today is Monday, October the 9th, 2023. And our calling number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you in the queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And it looks like fall is coming in while we're waiting on Michael to dial in. It's like 57 degrees and raining here. Michael's been out working in the garden most of the morning, and I've been writing on my book and getting the gardens ready to close down for the winter. So it's a a change in season, but the flowers are still beautiful, and they're still in full bloom and coming up and just amazing. So what is going on in your world? We would love to hear from you. love for you to direct how the show goes. Uh, We do have this week, um, hard to believe it's gone by already, but this coming Thursday is the book club. 
uh, Michael's participating in that, and I believe that that I'm not sure what chapter they're up to. Chapter ten, maybe. And uh, so they're going chapter at a time. Last week they uh, did a worksheet with a young lady, and it was awesome. And you can pick that up. Uh, all of the book club. You, if you go to our schedule and click on Global Book Club, why again? There you'll see all of the archives and what, you know, like if it was on Chapter 7 or Chapter 8 or whatever. And they are on Chapter 10 coming up this Thursday. But you can click and listen to all those. It'll take you to our YouTube channel where you can watch each one of those. They were done on Zoom. And so this Thursday is the next book club doing Chapter 10. And then not this coming Saturday, but the next is their Still Point Breathing. So if you've been thinking about participating in that, but you haven't committed to it yet, you want to register, please get in touch with Michael or I and register for that. We've got a good group going with, oh man, they're from, uh, of course, Inca's in London. We have Terry in North Carolina, uh, Tony in California. We have Julie in Spain. Julia's in Washington, Sarah's in Indiana, and then Michael and I are here in Virginia. So, I mean, we've covered, we're covering a lot of the globe. So be part of that. It's really great. Um, people are amazed at uh, the changes that they're seeing just by being online and breathing and processing with a group. And, oh, we have another gentleman that's in Colorado, too. So. But anyway, come and be part of that. The information for that can also be found under schedule. And it says uh, Mind Shifters and Still Point monthly membership. You can join for one month, you can join for three months, or you can join for a year. And so all of that information is there. So you click and read that. Seeing uh, a few changes on the website, there were some links that went down to other people's websites. So if they haven't corrected their links and I've referred to it, then it creates an issue on their page. But anyway, I think I've got most of those corrected. If you run into one, please let me know. Drop me a line at Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org, and let me know. And we're coming up close to the end of the year, so I'm just going to put a plug out there that if if uh, you would like to support this work and you need a tax donation, uh, please, you know, get in touch with us about that, and we'll get you the documentation you need for your taxes. And the donations would definitely help on this end. We, the app has been corrected, updated, upgraded, whatever you want to call it, so that it meets Google's requirement of uh, the new Android operating system. And so that has already been done, and I have paid India, but uh, could use some refurbishing <laughs> those funds. But anyway, so Michael will be with us here in just a moment. And if you are on another station where we can't see you, then please um, dial in 563-999-3581 and press 1. And I heard from our friend Bob, who is in Australia, and he's got some um, healing crisis challenges, and so hold the space for him. He hasn't been with us in a few couple of weeks or so. He's got some things going on, so I told him we would all be holding the space for him there. And Michael, we've got to send him some information, too. I just happened to think about that. So I'm going to welcome Michael. Yes. Thank you, dear heart. 
delighted to be here. Honored to be able to have this conversation move forward. And uh, and definitely, Bob, we're, if you do happen to be listening, holds you in the space. Whatever it is that needs to uh, unwind from your structure to get through this uh, opportunity, unwinds quickly and easily and leaves you stronger, healthier, and more alive than ever. And also, you had mentioned the uh, the worksheet that we did on the Hear My Voice book club in our last session. And I'd strongly urge anybody who's wanting to understand more about the worksheet or, or just wants to see what it does. Uh, this was a video presentation that we did. And a young lady who's been uh, following along in the book club for a little while had uh, volunteered to be the person to do a worksheet. And the visual difference from the opening of the conversation where she's got a pretty heavy load she's carrying about a power person and the full flush smile at the point where she made her shift uh, that just changed her whole demeanor I mean, so obvious and we got to get into you know a number of refinements about the worksheet process so if you really want another level of tutorial on that and to uh, comprehend what it can do. Uh, it's Until you've really used and applied the tool, hearing about it, you really can't fathom what it does. It's one of those things that you've got to experience it. And it's powerful to watch someone who's in a space of willingness facing some pretty heavy-duty stuff and the shift in energy coming, you know, moving to the other side of it. It's just, you know, and the how of it working, we got to explain a little bit more of that. In essence, when you realize that perception is a construct of the mind and everybody's got one, you know, if 10,000 fans watched a football game, I guarantee all 10,000 fans, if you said, what was most important in the game, you'd probably have at least 5,000 different answers. Why? They all are at the same game. Why? Because everybody's mental construct, their perception, literally the world they see is individual and unique to them. And you'll notice that in your mental constructs, in your perception, Unless you're just a generally miserable person, you will notice that you're pretty happy with most everybody who is fulfilling all the goals you have for them. When they're doing everything you want them to do, everything is cool. But you'll notice how, in a fraction of a second in many cases, you can move from being totally delighted with someone to rage in a heartbeat. And if you've ever had that happen, I just invite you to notice. It did not happen unless they violated a goal you had for them. You did not shift from, oh, I'm a happy camper with them, to you rotten, I hate you. That doesn't happen unless they violate a goal you hold for them. And the reason why that's important is because the perceptual constructs of the mind are driven by goals. You know, the goal you have about a thing determines what you observe. 
that's almost a paraphrase from Albert Einstein, who says the theory you have about a thing determines what you can observe about it. But there's a whole other level beyond the theory you have about it, and that is the goal you hold for it. And and we base that, the understanding of that, you know, there's some pretty powerful Harvard research. It's actually the most quoted research in psychological history. It goes back to the 1950s. And what they showed in the lab, they've got somebody hooked up to electrodes and they're measuring brain cell firings. And what they came up with is that in a time frame where approximately 10,000 individual units of electrical activity were happening in the brain, a maximum of nine bits of electrical activity made up the construct of the mind, the perception. The rest of it remained out of sight. So nine bits out of 10,000 brain cells firing. Now, obviously, if that's accurate and it's been through the mill and tested, it is accurate. Obviously, something must determine which nine bits of data your mind uses in order to build your perceptual construct, which includes behavior prompts, feelings, thoughts, etc. Our offering is that what drives perception is goals. And this is why what you do with your goals is at the core of the forgiveness process. Now, you'll notice we're told in this culture a Greek lie, or maybe that's unkind. Maybe it's just a Greek misunderstanding that forgiveness is about how I'm going to let you off the hook for what's happening inside of me. Because my perception's generating something based in pain, I should let you off the hook. It's like, is there any universe in which, when you look at it from that point of view, it makes any sense to let anybody else off the hook for what's being moved inside of you? No, it doesn't. In the Aramaic language, the word forgive is shebag or shabak, and it means to cancel. Now, if my perception is built in pained content that's inside of me and somebody triggers it into activity, let's say their behavior is really terrible, an evil, nasty, wicked, awful, horrible thing they do, then it is appropriate to take the action that the Greeks suggest, or it can be appropriate, and that is to pardon. So I'm going to let you off the hook for that terrible thing that you did, and if I call that forgiveness, then I'm going to think I've completed my processing. I'm going to think that the forgiveness is done. But actually, when I pardon you, that's all I've done is I've pardoned you. I've let you off the hook. And if my physiology, if my mind, if my emotions are disturbed and I'm experiencing something painful moving inside of me, obviously letting them off the hook for it doesn't change that in me. And what I really want to do, you know, if I want to do something other than live the title of my book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, I need to learn to change the content of my own mind. And it's the hidden part of my mind that I need to change, not the known part of my mind. In the ancient teachings, the hidden part of the mind was called the heart. You remember they said, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life. Notice they didn't say, take care of the other guy, for out of them are the issues in your life. 
take care of the heart. What is the heart? It is the unconscious. In our modern updated language, what that passage would say would be, take care of your own unconscious dynamics for the pain that you're experiencing shows up out of those dynamics. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to get inside of it. Well, how do you get inside of it if it's unconscious? Well, I guess I could go and lay on the psychiatrist's couch and talk for the next 20 years and see if I can find that deep, dark, dirty thing and fix it. Well, that perhaps is one solution. And you might think that thinking through something will fix it for you. But actually, I love what uh, David Bohm said. He said that most people, when they think, are simply rearranging their prejudices. What you want to do is you want a tool that will help you to access or drop into your own unconscious mind. Now, many people would say, no, I don't want to go in there. Like, the darkness in there, no thank you. But if you want to heal... That's what you're going to have to do. And that is precisely what was presented 2,000 years ago on how to access the heart or the unconscious and clean up what is at the core of the issues in your life. And so our invitation is to look at and recognize exactly what forgiveness is, and that is it's the tool that empowers you to drop into your unconscious mind, make connection with your own unconscious dynamics, and process through them. And in this work, we define processing as accessing anything that's less than love in the space of love. Because when you do that, whatever you've accessed in the space of active present love instantly automatically dissolves. All you, have to, you don't have to figure it out. You don't have to do anything with it. All you have to do is access it in the presence of love, and guess what happens? Bingo, bingo, bingo. Shift, shift, shift. So how do you do that? Well, you look at the, you identify in any given situation the goal that you hold for the object of attention. It might be yourself in the mirror. It might be your big toe. It might be your greatest enemy. It might be your best friend. It might be your spouse. It might be your child. It might be your parent. And when you look at the goal you hold for them, and you shebag that goal, you cancel that goal, Here's what happens. The perceptual construct of your mind based on that goal collapses. And when it collapses, it collapses in on itself. And when it collapses in on itself, you have access to the unconscious dynamics in your mind. You have entered into your heart. And when you start to clean that up, everything in your life starts to change. Your physiology, your emotions, your creative process, your relationships, your finances, it impacts absolutely everything. So if you want a really good look at that, I'm sure Jeannie's already got the link for the Hear My Voice book club where we did that worksheet a couple of weeks ago in the notes, and or you can go to the YouTube channel. 
and access it. Now we've got lots and lots of workshops that we've done. I'll just offer that this was a particularly powerful process that if you observe it, it's a, it's a wonderful piece of learning. And inspiring when you see, I mean, you just have to look at this lady's physiology when she begins and when she ends, and it answers the whole question. You can see the massive shift of energy that's taken place for her. So jump on the YouTube channel and take a look at Hear My Voice Book Club. You go to the YouTube channel by going to whyagain, whyagain.org, and up in the right-hand corner, uh, you'll see the social media links. You can click on YouTube, and or you can go directly to YouTube and just type in Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, space, R-Y-C-E, and you'll be looking at our YouTube channel, and I know there are 100-plus videos there. Everything from the full Why Is This Happening to Me Again workshop to several worksheets we've done with people to just a wide variety of things. There's a um, another Hear My Voice book club that's really powerful where we covered the lesson from A Course in Miracles, What is the World? We did the whole lesson in that particular. And up until we did that, just, oh, I guess that's a month or so ago, the only way you could get that was to buy it off of our website. And we decided to go ahead and share it uh, in the Hear My Voice book club. So that's a, a freebie that's available. Uh, otherwise, it was available by DVD, a $40 DVD or a $20 download. And we have, I don't even know how many videos you can go to our catalog, and there are 15 or so different video workshops that you can do. Uh, they're actually, I don't even know what the prices are, but there's some sale prices on right now, and you can buy a streaming of a four-hour workshop, two-hour workshop, and a variety of different things there in any event. So, Miss Jeannie, any thoughts to add to the explanation of forgiveness that uh, that you found helpful that might uh, round out what I've shared so far? No, but we do have a hand up, and I believe that it's Well, then let's say hello. 727, you're on the air. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> well, Patrick McGann, how do you be, Doc? I'm excellent. Thank you. I'm really good. Awesome. I'm happy. Yeah. Well, that's so, nice to hear. What's exciting in your world? What's on your mind today? Well, two things. One is I was thinking vice, vice versa on one of the things you said, but I keep getting mixed up because I kept trying to reinterpret exactly what you were saying, which is, I think, um, constructs of the mind. Oh, goals drive the constructs of the mind. And then right. vice versa, constructs of the mind is what chooses goals, good and bad. So that was just the thought I had. And then well, the major, don't hold, hold okay, with that thought. That's that a story. great thought. That's a great thought because most people allow their goals to be formulated by the constructs of the mind, by, via perception, which means... All they're doing is replicating the past. Goals, actually, there's a faculty of the soul, a faculty of being called will, and goals are meant to be sourced from being, 
not from the mind and not from perception. So that's a really good point. Nice catch. Remember exactly where it was, but there's a word. When I get it, I'll send it to you or come back on on and talk about it again. But it was something to do with just not it's not even using goals for your day, but I don't know whether it was preferences or something. But it, oh, it was from Stoic, from Stoicism on on uh, YouTube. So I can dig it up there. But it totally changed what you experienced through the day. Oh, it said you have intention, intention, and then you go through the flow of enjoying life towards so-called goal, but don't choose it as goal if you want to have a great day. That was what, and I don't know exactly. I'll go back and study again, but that's the gist of it. Well, you're, you're tapping into some of the laws of living work that we do in that, in that regard, and my take from what you've said would be that if you have no goals, well, first of all, you can't have no goals. If, if you had no goals, you'd die. Goals are, are right at the core of life. But if you didn't frame any goals for the day and make commitments to them, there'd be a problem in that you'd never get anything done. You know, everything that you do, all behavior is based in goals. And there are a lot of people who talk about the power of intention. In fact, I think there are a couple of books out there with the, in the title, The Power of Intention. And my favorite saying about intention is, and this is actually, you know, Dan McDougald, who I co-authored Laws of Living With, was an attorney, brilliant, brilliant man. And when he was in the Navy in World War II, they actually did um, an IQ test on all of the men in the Navy. Dan McDougald came up as number three. Wow of everybody in the Navy. So, you know, this guy was just an intellectual giant. And one of his favorite sayings about intentions was, understanding how the mind works, was that a shadow, or pardon me, an intention can no more cause a behavior than a shadow can carry a stone. Kind of looks like a shadow should be able to pick something up and move it, but it can't happen. And it's the same with intention. Intention has no power whatsoever. It's the goal that drives the mind. The part that intentions play in it is intentions are the raw material of our goals. And if you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, where they ask him, what's most important in the law? Now, the word law in Aramaic, does not mean, as our culture would try to force us to believe, that it's the rule of a superior and we better obey and that there's somebody up there going to enforce these laws and send you to hell if you don't obey them. There's nothing to be obeyed in the law in Aramaic. The word law simply means the way things work. So there are a bunch of disciples around. They ask, yes, you know, what's most important in the law, i.e., what's most important in how to make things in your life work? He does not, as the Greeks tell us, say, love God, love neighbor as yourself. What he says is, have rachma for the creator, for neighbor. And by doing so, you maintain yourself. 
And Brahma, it turns out, and there's no such concept in the English language, in the Greek, or the Latin that we get our translations in the New Testament from, or that most people do. Unless you go back to the Aramaic, it just isn't there. There's not even a word for it. There's not even a concept of it. But Rachma is a filter and a gateway in the frontal lobes of the brain. It's a gateway for love, human life, to enter this human form. The other two filters over the frontal lobes of the brain, over intentions, are fear and hostility. If fear and hostility become active, only one of those filters can be active at a time. So if either fear or hostility become active, rachma is lost, and therefore the presence of love is lost. That's why, you know, it, it, let's go into a courtroom and, you know, imagine we've got the most loving person in the world on the witness stand, and the opposing attorney gets up to ask questions. What's he going to try to do? He's going to try to trigger this person into some form of hostility or fear. Because when he goes into hostility or fear, his the presence of love, which is the presence of intelligence as well, is gone. And now this person is either going to turn negative or destructive. And they've got that witness right where they want them. So when Yeshua says Rachma, he's saying, you keep this gateway open and you get to stay connected to your human life, to love. And... Its second purpose is that it's a filter over intentions. And as a filter, it allows only intentions keyed to love come available as the building blocks for your goals, which drive your behaviors. So Rahman was the most important thing in the law, i.e., in how to live a human life. Your intentions are on track with love. The alternative, if it's either hostility or fear, they're going to be either negative or destructive intentions, and therefore the goals are going to be based in negativity and destructive energy, or the goals are going to be based in love. And so if we keep this filter, Rachma, open, we stay in touch with our human lives, and our mind stays on track with love. Our intentions are now based in love, not that they have any power, but they're the building blocks. They're the raw materials. And so when you've got that, then the, the, the flow of information into behavior then is all based in love, and everything is transformed from the old hostility and fear-based game that most people live in. Yay. <laughs> Am I still on? Maintain Rachma. You're here, loud and clear, sir. Okay. So um, I'd like to add in some of my journey experiences in my language in case it might touch somebody in their language and also so you can do corrections on it. But before you do Please that, do. I'd like to go to a certain... Okay, so first, um, as we all know, I always hated work, the worksheets. Why? Because it brings me into having to face my pain. And then my pain's up, right? So, so I developed a lot of little shortcuts and different ideas. <laughs> so one, I'm laughing now. The so one is to avoid. To realize, no, not at all. My laughter is. I'll, I'll explain it now. So, so we're creators. You know, know you not that you're God's meaning creators, not the creator, but yes, 
made in the image of God, we are creators. And so we're, in right. my opinion, just learn how to do it right, you know, how to do it better. Not right, but because there's judgment in that right and wrong, good, bad. But anyway, heading for a, a more, re, you know, something better. So we're growing. So in that, um, when I screw up <laughs> and I'm especially driving down the road and I'm looking at what I did and where I screwed up, instead of feeling guilty, which the whole thing was, you know, one of the promises that was supposed to be shown with Jesus was no more guilt, you know. But we all do it. We've all been, it's a construct of the mind. We've got it in there. And we all feel bad about what we do. And, and then we're self-punishing. So I drive down the road and I think about what I did, stupid. And I laugh at myself. And it cracks up the construct to a high degree and brings always a smile at the end of it. And, you know, I just say, you know, some of the stuff you do is a joke. Now, if it bothered anybody, hurt anybody, then I also do make amends and correct, you know, let them know that I have corrected my behavior, <laughs> my thought, and my thought process is underneath, get corrected before I talk to them. So then I'm going to go to the thought processes. So I have different names for the thought processes. One was from a long time ago, the human biocomputer system in the 70s I read. So I looked at the programs in the unconscious mind as being programs. And I call them programs. Now, my wife channeled a lot of information from a Melchizedek who is not the one in the Bible, but he has some pretty high information. So within her channeled information teachings, they call it belief systems. What are your belief systems? So as you believe, you receive. So we project it out because it's inside us and we get to experience it, etc. Now, what do you do? You have a belief system, and that particular methodology, which I've used I use everything off and on, but um, first would be that you bring it up as it is. So, but the, and other spiritual teachers I agree with, don't bring it up at somebody, okay? So my mind's got a program in it of, bl of the blame game, which is everybody's got that. That's how we grew up. That's, we learn the language of the blame game, transfer. But what, you know, since it's come from inside me, it's me that's got the problem no matter what. Um, I'm going to resolve it inside myself. And if I have some anger that, that's brought to the surface, I bring it up with a whole, without the guilt of trying to suppress the words and the program as it is. I bring it up as it is. And that, but don't feel, try not to feel guilty about it. You know, sometimes I do, right then when I'm bringing it up. Then I either do the forgiveness work as you, as you put it out, or I may do the Rosicrucian way because I really believe it's just a belief system, a viewpoint, and that the opposite, somebody else is holding the opposite to be true. So there's always, just like Patricia looks at it like a, a, a what do you call those, disco ball gloves that were all, disco balls that those, all those little mirrors are just, you know, light, whatever. They, um, or, <laughs> anyway. So you could go to the opposite side of that ball and get the opposite viewpoint. And debate, in high school, people, they were debating and really believed what they were saying vehemently. And then they had to change sides and go study the other thing. When they had done it, then they really, I've never seen anybody didn't believe the other side and start fighting for that one. So it's like, 
change the viewpoint or in the Rosicrucian way, walk around the circle. And I think the other thing I did when, when I think about the first thing I do when, when someone brings up what I think is an offense, which is really a gift to me, you know, when they challenge one of my, you know, programs that brings up my stuff, they're giving me a gift, but I think, oh, no, you know, they did this to me <laughs> before I realized that they're giving me a gift. Because if I'm contracting, sorry that I'm going around circles here, but if I'm contracting, I'm in hell. It's my personal hell. My chemistry has gone to hell. It's killing me. It is every negative thought I think from another spiritual teacher is, and absolutely understand this, it is a death wish. Every anger, every fear, the chemistry in the body changes and we're killing ourselves. So, okay, it comes up now, how fast can I let go? That's maybe why I laugh at it and let's go pretty fast. But I brought it up and now I look at it and I need release. I need to get the other viewpoint come or come to neutral in between the two. Something, do the work, do the forgiveness, it's all internal. And then it doesn't come back. Otherwise, it's going to be over and over and over and over and over until, until as long as I have an energy in me, like I think the one that I still have to deal with, I don't know how, it's. I'm chewing away on this mountain, and that is to be respected. So over the years, as people have done what I thought was disrespectful, it has really brought up some things to be resolved within myself. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I'll be dealing with that. I'm laughing at it to just reduce the negative impact because I do feel guilty about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I think but that... Until it's gone. Oh, I do have one thing to say. I got rid of... Um, I did think the PTSD from military, I had some extreme anger every time I thought of my three, three friends that I spent three years with, and then I left for Atlanta, and then... One of them already OD'd, and that got me. You know, it's like I lived with him, took care of him, cooked food for him, did the plants, move him around his pool because he was paraplegic and he couldn't, you know, do anything. Like, so to make a difference in his life, change the views for him (laughs) so it wouldn't be the same. And then my other two friends, when I went to Atlanta, both of them blew themselves away. And that was... If I, it's like now I can, as you can hear my voice tones, I'm not extremely contract contracting, and I can't believe lost in it, right? Yeah, well, lost in it and angry. You can't believe how vehement I was against military and against war and against everything. And I'm sitting there killing myself with this anger, and I released all three of them to the point when I think about them. Steve, my little buddy from high school, I can, it's just like he's alive. And it's like there's no charge. There's no negativity. And I'm free. I can breathe and I can smile and I can mm-hmm. just enjoy nice. that I had the time with him and he was such a phenomenal guy. And I got to spend the time with him. So same thing for my other brother that did himself in. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, so big difference. Big difference. So that was a long one. So I'm I'm working away to get rid of that stuff. And also on the military, uh, since I do believe in multiple lives, I and I've seen it even with people. I think um, different guys this life that were killers, like what was Patrick down? You know, it's like 
Patrick that lived out at your center yep. Yep. was originally somebody that was going to be put away because he was sneaking out the perimeter, which is almost impossible because he was good. And then he'd get back in, but he'd be covered with blood and not even know what he did. So they were going to put him away. Went to your place, healed phenomenally to when he went out in the woods. And they, <laughs> I wish I had that. <laughs> no mosquitoes, no ticks. <laughs> and Tick City, he didn't get ticks because he was so clear and so pure for a while. And then he became a healer. And I see the same thing. It's like everything I ever learned in martial arts can be modified in the way I move my arms, hands, and it heals people. By the way, I touch them and the way I push them, I just modify it all. But the power of, you know, that's in that art is there, but the anger and the hate and all that junk ain't there. It's like, so I just, I use it for healing. And I've seen quite a few military people this lifetime become healers. Um, and I know this, that I made this one up when I, when it was bothering me before, before I got some release by actually completing the forgiveness, <laughs> I would say, right. uh, I just lost my thought. Mm, okay. Your turn. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, um, another direction to take your worksheets in around this idea of being honored or respected. And then you stepped right into how you had friends who killed themselves. Right. And that being honored and respected ties into survival. So some worksheets around survival might be useful to get to another corner of your mind that is tied into this whole issue for you. Another yeah, little piece just, of the puzzle. Yeah, the pave, I just saw the pavement in front of me. Thank you for the path that I'm taking on that specific. Um, yeah. And it, it had to do, what it came up was right now, and I'll deal with it later, <laughs> is um, that when when we were in the field, during the Vietnam era, I was in Korea and I was in DMZ, which wasn't well known, but for example, three men in my outfit volunteered to go back to Vietnam to get out of my outfit. And wasn't a lot of fun going on out there in the DMZ. <laughs> Not a lot of good. You know. But where we didn't get respected is, um, what's it called? Army intelligence. We always laugh at that. That's a, a backwards thing. So Army intelligence. An oxymoron. Yeah, it's an oxymoron. Thank you. They would tell us how to set up a patrol, where to go, and it was always wrong, always. And they didn't listen to us. So now you hear my charge coming up. Okay. So they put us at risk constantly. Good. Let's go for it. And, and it and it's same thing over. And it was worse in Vietnam by a long shot compared to the damage done in Korea. But you know, it's like, wow. Well, Okay, bringing it up. <laughs> so it's like that still holds, and some other things happen. Some of my PTSDs, like being tortured by officer candidates, were supposed to, where I won a war game. <laughs> like that one progressed a long way. So I want to give a progress report, and then I'll work on that one later. But progress report, that one, it's like, being very upset, I was not able to um, – so that's a 
portion of not trusting anybody in charge and always being charged by anybody in the company or anybody in charge of anything making a mistake and not listening because they don't listen to the people in the field. They don't take the information. So like the information I had on the patrols was simple. North Koreans are coming down the ridge line of the mountains and they run and they run below the top where you can see them. They're just below it. And that's how they get from North Korea to our, to our area fast. And what are we doing down in the valley below, which is the high ground is always, you know, we're just, we're mincemeat if we're down there. It's like, what do you do? Why are we down here? What are we sitting in the But that's what of, you were ordered uh, to do. Like, you know, so it was constant. And before I, before I went overseas, another one that I'll deal with is that and I had three guys come back from Nam and they were sitting in Fort Dick's barrack and they were, one of them was shaking all the time. So I interviewed them and they basically same thing. They had weapons that did not work. And they were ordered to take a hill, lose out of 50 men average in a platoon, lose the majority of their people, one guy, come back down, go somewhere else, ordered to come down and give up the hill, ordered to take it again, wipe out three-quarters of this platoon that's been replenished, comes down, back again. So it's like, why, you know, why did they give up the hill? It's like, what kind of crazy is going on? And everybody I know from Vietnam knew that, you know, like 20% to a third of your people got killed from friendly fire by mistakes. That one I don't, I'm not too upset with because everybody's making mistakes, but war shouldn't be there anyway, in my opinion. We all ought to be working together because so, we're all one body. So my, my, t- my offering would be that this worksheet that's going to help to clear this dynamic out is going to look like you know, in number one C, the goal is going to be for your military higher ups to be intelligent, <laughs> and forgiveness they is going to look like canceling that loud. goal. All right. Ah, thank you. Okay. That's, that's where the healing. They're good. Get that breath. That that little breath. That's just. That's where it starts to open. And yeah, that's where my, the underlying energy process. My whole body got a tingly rush. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, all right. It seems work for that. so counterintuitive. It seems so counterintuitive to pan- cancel a perfectly reasonable, logical, sensible goal. But when you understand how the mind works, it's the canceling of the goal that allows the perceptual construct to be collapsed so that we can get into that hidden part of the mind where the trauma is stored and clean it out. It doesn't mean that I won't go back at the end of the worksheet and reestablish that goal, but yeah, I cancel it at least temporarily to get to that part of my mind that needs healing. I just had a thought I'd like to share. As soon as you said cancel the goal, well, the goals, these particular goals are built on survival, right? Therefore, who wants to give up their survival? So they really need yep. to know God-given gifts. It just goes haywire. So to unhaywire it you need, and to face it and to give up the goal so you can breathe and see clearly and redo things, um, you need to know that you can bring it back if you want. <laughs> you don't have to throw yes. it away. You can modify it, whatever it's you want. It's an important but, step. But you certainly, 
taking the risk and getting the benefit, it's certainly worth it. <laughs> Knowing you can go back and get it if you need it will help out. I think. Right. I would like to yeah, say the canceling about, of the goal. The canceling of the goal does not need to be a permanent condition. It just means that right here, right now, I'm willing to cancel this as a tool for collapsing what my mind is showing me. And and when that part of my mind collapses, you know, I like to use a, a visual for people to get what that really means. And everybody watched the 9-11 towers go down and fall in their own footprint. If you imagine your perception comes out of a footprint within your unconscious, something hidden in the mind, the heart, take care of the heart, fraud of it are the issues in life. If you recognize that, then when you cancel the goal that drives this particular unconscious data into activity, when you cancel that goal, that collapses just like the 9-11 towers did into its own footprint, and you now have access directly to the unconscious data. And when you do that in the presence of love, that's where dissolution, that's where the healing takes place. Go back and reestablish the goal again. Perfect. If you find, and, you know, people say, well, why would I cancel a perfectly good goal? I mean, I, I need that. I want that. It's like, I got it. But have you noticed that every time you load that goal, your mind goes into trauma, pain, and upset? You want to cancel that goal as long as there's any trauma, pain, or upset in your mind to clear that out, then go can't, go set the goal and you'll just produce the result rather than have all this unconscious trauma going on. It took me years to understand that about the forgiveness process, that that's what, how it worked. It took me, I mean, literally, it took me over three decades to understand that, working full time with it. I don't let go of this perfectly good goal because I don't want it. Certainly I want it. Okay. I maybe even think I need it. I maybe My life may be desperate for it, but I'm going to cancel it because I've noticed that every time I put it in my mind, my mind goes into disturbance and upset. And I want to go inside and clean up my disturbance and upset, my unconscious. Yeah. So that when I put it in, I have clarity. I want to share two more things in my path that have assisted greatly one was like one of the things i studied was flower essences which have no smell and so the easiest representation is box flowers which are available in most all health food stores the languaging right off it comes from earlier like world war ii below language so but the spectrum of what those flower essences will handle is much wider than 1940 languaging or so. So there are many doctors. I like 20, 30 different books and many medical doctors who wrote about it and expanded the understanding. And then I went out to your place and I found when I shared those um, with people who were really stuck, that they were able to move faster and easier on their forgiveness. So my theory on the flowers are, unlike the other homeopathic medicines that bring up your negativity, for you so you can deal with it and heal it. Um, they connect you, help you connect, get the blockage out of the way between you and your soul or you and the universe and all the solutions that are available. And I experienced that way before I went to your place. I used to work with people and do those sessions with them. 
and watch them, you know, just totally change. Um, you know, and, and it was amazing. Watch your voice change, watch everything change. And a lot of people, when I would ask them about their negative, 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 <laughs> and they bring it up, be and then they take the essence and then they'd get connected. And then um, I'd watch her, I'd go to the next problem they had and then watch what happened on the energetic level. And then all of a sudden I'd take them back and I'd say, okay, what about what you said before and what you were upset about? And they go, uh, well, the worst, <laughs> we had the best probably <laughs> was somebody to say, well, I don't even remember that, you know, but everybody when speaking about it always, it was easier. They were lighter. And um, that was one. And the other was the absent machine. It's like, to me, that one can assist if somebody identifies their particular thing, like not seeing light at the end of the tunnel or, you know, I'm depressed or whatever. This and that and the other. Here are my fears. So that's great. And now but that did not clean up the amount that solidified into my body from all my angers. So two things, Beamer and Avison. The Beamer, you helped me purchase and invest in. And as I was using it, and about six months on, all of a sudden, I woke up with my face all torqued up and all this anger was in it. And I couldn't even move it. It was just something took me over. And you know? I was like, or I took myself over, but nothing I could do about it. And then I viewed my body and I felt the energy coming up from my lower legs. It's like, Ah, I get it. This is all the anger about the war and about the people, la la la. And I've it's blocked the circulation in my lower legs. They said it was Agent Orange giving me diabetes that blocked it, but this is real. This is energy moving up. It's taking me over in my face, coming from my legs, and I identified it really easily. So yeah, maybe the biochemistry of the destruction of you know some, but I really believe all that can change. If I, you know, it's like, and I've seen that, but the major thing that I got was after the Beamer and it went so far, but it left out an element of heat, in my opinion. So I think the Beamer's phenomenal, especially um, like our dog, we brought him back alive when he was really out of it, you know, ready to go. We got another four right. or six months of enjoyment. Um, and I think it's great, many assets, but the Avacyn brings heat to bear. And the Avacyn does microcirculation but when i got it when and I that's first, when wait, I first, what i'm just just to clarify so what i'm hearing is what you found is when you got the heat to your legs through the avacyn that's when you were able to open that anger that's where it was physiologically stored no so it was a vitalizing no. effect that opened you to be able to I, touch into that no i screwed up what brought it up was the beamer while i was sleeping right the beamer so it's progressive so i got the understanding with the beamer because the beamer got the blood flow well enough to bring that up so i could start working with it all right then then i actually had cramps still with the beamer they woke me up somewhere between 2 two thirty usually and four thirty. so after i work on myself for an hour and a half to get rid of the cramps they were so severe I would, and this is about six months of my life. It was like hell because it was a hell. I couldn't get any sleep. I could only sleep about four or five hours, cramps. Now I work on myself in my, in my office rehab room. And then why I go back to sleep? It's like 
daylight's coming. So then a friend brought this machine over, and luckily I had no placebo effect, no knowledge of what it is. Put my hand in it. It was a Beamer. Not the Beamer. I'm sorry. It was the Avacyn. I put my hand in it and heated my body up, internally heated my blood up. I had no idea. I just knew I had a warm hand. I had one possible placebo was I was enjoying the company of the man next to me in conversation, though positivity was there at least. But when I got up, I felt like I was Mr. Gumby Goo. All the constructs of my muscles, which have to do with the patterns of energy and thought and emotion, let go. And they were just like, relax, let go. Who am I? I was like, so I went to my, I didn't have any shoes on, so I went and got some shoes on. And then I felt like, oh, my, what is that? My feet irritating me. I looked down at my feet and I said, oh, my God, it's heat. I haven't had heat. 20 years or so, you know, I don't know how long it was, but what I said was... To you myself, mean feeling warmth there? 20, 20 years, but I haven't had any warmth down there. All I have is cramps and pain. Also, I had, I forgot to say this, I had extreme neuropathic pain um, at about two and a half hours work every day around the house. Um, I'd have to come in, lay back in an easy chair and get my feet up higher in my heart to drain out the pressure and get the pressure off the nerves that were, like the theory would be the myelin sheaths were burned off, so they were raw nerves. And that's where I started, two and a half hours, that's it. Now, 20 minutes later, you can breathe again, but you can't work anymore today. You know, you just got to take it easy so you can at least get around because that, that was, you can't do any more walking around strongly. Once I started so I'm still not clear. Okay. So I'm still not clear. So... So what I'm what I think I'm hearing is you were saying that your feet were always cold and when you got the cold. heat from the Avacyn, that shifted all of that. That shifted it. And then the second thing that happened mm-hmm. was since I had the neuropathic pain, when I the heat right away, right? That was first experience. So then pain, that one time and I found that all the neuropathic pain for three days went away. All the cramps went away for three days. And at three and a half days, all of a sudden in the middle of the day, my whole body starts feeling like, oh, my gosh. And I said, oh, I didn't know I canceled this much pain. But the pain's coming back. The tendency for the um, cramps was coming back. Not yet. Didn't get a full cramp that night. But all the neuropathic pain was starting to come back. And I said, I got really mad. <laughs> brought up my anger. So, darn it, I got to buy that machine because it only lasts three and a half days for my body. You know, so I bought a machine and at and it by using it, I used it more than you know twice a week. But that pain never was there again at the two and a half hour mark. And then you came by one time when a hurricane was coming. And I think I worked eleven hours. That was only not long at half a year after we had the machine or I had one. But I had normal foot pain, but I didn't have any hellfire, debilitating, can't breathe pain anymore. Now, at eight months, I started loading my private machine out to people to try because I had no more neuropathy at all, and I don't now. That's awesome. I do have neuropathy and the loss of feeling some, but I don't. Those nerves, by the flow of blood and oxygen and nutrition in and the acid waste out of that area, they were able to repair themselves to an extremely high degree to never burn again. So nice. 
That's awesome. Eventually, what a gift. It, yeah, really. And I, oh, I'm going to go ahead and tell the truth. One of the things I didn't want to say was um, I had to wear, I had leakage, you know, inappropriately, so I had to wear diapers for half a year. That's gone. So kidney, liver, I don't know what it did for liver, but the kidney functions, <laughs> a lot, kidney, bladder, et cetera. That's, you know, phenomenal. Just how do you get that? Nice. No, listen, what else disappeared? Oh, I forgot my hands through excessively deep work into people for 45 years. When I retired, they had to massage sick. practice. Yeah, I'm doing that. But I always reached under people and lifted them up with my fingers, and I burnt them out real well. <laughs> so my right hand was shaped like it was holding a volleyball, and it was stuck. wouldn't move more than 10, 15 degrees with extreme effort. And when they'd draw blood, they'd say, make a fist. And my hand, it would be like I still had a, bait, a softball in my hand as far as I could get. I'd just laugh at him. Yeah, look at that. And it hurt to do it. Well, then after, I don't know how long, but last a year and a half ago, <laughs> I've gained full range of motion phenomenally. I've got, I had on, I had to, after I got the flesh softened, oh, I got one of the, <laughs> I still had some, um, jam and some of the joints on the ring finger on the right that's gone now and i'm working on the index finger on the right i've got only two joints left on the left but the flesh is softened on the flesh softening the other thing that i lost was being diabetic i couldn't just i couldn't reach my toes by about three four inches to cut them three inches and i couldn't do the work so i had to you know couldn't go to a salon because if they cut you and you're diabetic, well, you're in trouble now. So I had to go to the doctor and pay him 30 bucks to cut my toenails. <laughs> it's like, well, that's gone. I can now reach four inches past my toes. So my whole All right. Soft. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like profound. the forgiveness machine. So to me, when, when I've always worked with people, I've always known this. If I do, if I release your body and I unblock all the flows that are blocked on every level, and you feel fantastic. If you still haven't forgiven the programs that stress you, <laughs> that are in you, that bring up stress, the person did forgive a lot. They're going to hold a whole lot of what I did and it won't come back. If they didn't forgive, it'll come back. You know, but Well, my offering, about, we're down to about the last minute or so, but my offering is you were talking about how that happened in your legs and it came back three or four days later. The other thing that you said was you went into a lot of anger. My offering would be when you dealt with that anger, first the tissue had to open to yield it up, but then when you dealt with that anger, that was the end of your pain because it was what needed to really be processed. The circulation opened, gave you access to it, but then as that anger came up and you were able to work through it, that's when the assault went and left the tissue free and clear. That's what, that's exactly. And I, and when I look at it with people, I say, well, when I'm working on and freeing them, it's an opportunity to see what it would be like if you let go of the programs that created it before the belief or right. forgiven construct yeah. of the mind. Awesome. Awesome. Well, the show's going to cut us off, Patrick. Thank you for sharing that. 
have some good insight and uh you are appreciated and cherished uh you know we've been oh, boy, hanging out like for better than a half a century <laughs> now i feel blessed <laughs> i am all right Patrick, take you, care sir. all right bye-bye okay must love and blessings my friend blessings Thank